Hi folks, Kelly here. Introducing today's special episode. It's going to be a little different from what you've been getting on Personal Rejection Letter lately. Um, and in fact, what you're getting today is the first chapter of my audiobook, Cloud Break California, which was just released as an audiobook. Um, and uh, we don't have a regularly scheduled episode right now, it being summer and all that kind of stuff. So I thought I'd uh, just give you a chance to take a listen to the first chapter. Um, I also am not sure when the next uh, personal rejection letter episode is going to uh, air in that we are going to, uh, we're reassessing, we've got I think 27 episodes out, it's been a lot of fun. We're not entirely sure if we're going to keep going with the project and if we do, I don't know that it's going to be the same lineup. Um, so uh, I hate to not be able to give you any definite answers, but I did want to signal that there's going to be at least a, a hiatus and um, and maybe my next uh, podcast project will be a different one or, or maybe uh, we'll do another quote season of personal rejection letter in a different form in some way. Not quite sure at this point, but um, I hope you enjoy my book and I hope you guys enjoyed the uh, episodes we've done so far. And I just want to thank all you listeners out there for sticking around. And uh, it's been a lot of fun uh, to know that there's people listening to, uh, to our banter and uh, sometimes writing in. And um, it's been a very good experience. So sit back, take a listen to Cloudbreak California, and keep your, your eyes and ears um, peeled if you can peel ears for any future episodes uh, or any new incarnations of Personal Rejection Letter or maybe even a new podcast from us. Anyway, hope you're well. Take care. Chapter 1. Redlands It was ninth grade speech, and a popular kid named John was holding forth on the greatest subject ever, the practice of eating insects. To the right of the podium stood a table, set with a brown paper sack and an ominous blender. On the left, John's title, Critters a la Carte, lurched across the poster in large, jumbled letters cut from magazines, like ransom notes or the taunts of serial killers I'd seen on television. Having dispensed with the introduction, John paused to peel back the title page of his poster pad, revealing a close-up of a bowl filled with fat brown beetles, biggest thumbs. Repulsive vermin? he asked. Duh, the gum-chewing girl beside me muttered. The rest of us held our peace. Maybe to us, John intoned, but to the savages of Africa, they're a delicacy. The next page featured a beetle bitten half by a grinning native, its white guts oozing like marshmallow filling. And not just Africans eat bugs. John continued over our groans of disgust. Mexicans do, too. Now a shot of a locust on a toothless peasant's tongue. Anyone can eat insects. They're even good for you, containing many essential vitamins and minerals such as protein. To prove my point, John fished a baggie from his grocery sack and shook the dark crawlies inside. I'm going to eat these raw, live crickets right here before your eyes. Boy, oh boy, I thought, leaning forward at my desk and rubbing my hands together like a mad scientist. This was going to be good. John produced a carton of milk from the sack, raised it high, and poured it theatrically into the blender. 
He added a dollop of peanut butter and then a peeled banana. Finally, he shook the crickets into the mix and sealed them in with the lid. He took his time unwinding the blender's cord, building the suspense. Then sunlight swept into the room and we turned, ashamed to be caught so happy in class. A skinny boy with black hair stood in the doorway, brandishing a pale blue slip of paper. Hold on, gravel-voiced Mr. Salter said, grabbing the note. Daniels, he yelled, and everyone turned to me, the weird kid in the corner who never spoke. No, I thought, how could it be? For once, I actually wanted to be here, and they chose this day, this period, to take me out. I didn't think they even knew my name up in the office. Salter handed me the note with a clap on my shoulder. There'll be other speeches, he said, and aimed a meaty finger at John. Hit it, and the blender whined like a sports car. Yeah, but not this speech, I mumbled, climbing out of my desk. Well, things are tough all over, kid. Scoot. He shooed me out and closed the door. The messenger was gone, and I stood alone under the covered walkway between two single-story buildings. I shouldn't have expected anything else of Salter. No such thing as a free lunch, was his favorite saying, printed on posters throughout the classroom. One of them featured a mouse squashed in a trap, the cheese still locked in his dead jaws. For whatever reason, he was my favorite teacher. My footsteps echoed off the aluminum awning and cinder-block faces of the classrooms. Alone in this place of crowds, I felt a little spooked, the sole survivor of nuclear holocaust. What would I do? Hop into the nearest Corvette, naturally. The fantasy, a common one, quickly ran its course, leaving me to wonder what I'd done to capture the notice of the authorities. The note, just my name and the date scrawled on carbon paper, offered no clues. I walked as slowly as possible, now certain I'd accidentally broken some unknown rule and that I'd be in for it. Eight years of public school hadn't taught me much, beyond the fact that I was woefully different from everyone else, no matter how hard I tried to be like them. I hadn't grown up in a cul-de-sac or even in a house, a city or town. My earliest memories took place in a decommissioned delivery van, which my father had outfitted with bunks, a couch, ice chest, a propane stove, and even a dresser, the essentials for life on the road. When it came time to start school, we moved to a tiny desert community called Anza, an hour drive from the nearest hospital, police, or fire stations, where I'd eventually shown up for the first grade, a long-haired boy with a girl's name, dressed in a homemade outfit as loose and flowing as robes. The kids called me Jesus, and it wasn't a compliment. When I tearfully told Mom about my nickname, she smiled and hugged me. Dad had taken off months before to keep searching for the perfect wave, the endless summer. Maybe they know more about you than they think, she said, and my tears stopped immediately, like water from a kinked hose. Life wasn't going to be easy, I realized, and no one was going to save me. I arrived at the office and stood for a moment in front of the steel door. I pulled it open and slipped unseen into a room of dark wood paneling and short, hard carpet, quiet except for the hum of the old secretary's electric typewriter. She was too busy scowling at a raggedy man standing beside a fake palm frowning down at Time magazine to have noticed me enter. 
Now I was doubly perplexed. What was Dad doing here? I hadn't seen him in months. He looked up from the magazine and smiled. How you doing, son? He asked, so somber I thought he must be goofing. The secretary filled the room with the clatter of typing, and I couldn't help seeing my father through her eyes. He wore flip-flops, holy blue jeans, and a Mr. Zog sex-wax t-shirt so old I could see his chest hair through the fabric. The school had banned these popular shirts at the beginning of the year, and the ban had made them more popular still. The scandal was far from resolved, and here he was, a parent no less, setting the wrong example. I was always half proud and half embarrassed by my father, just as I half wanted to be like everyone else and half wanted to be different. It was a confusing time. I'm okay, I said. My nine-year-old brother, Umblio, who went by Oli, stood at Dad's side, red-headed, freckle-faced, and zoned out. Let's get out of this place, Dad said and dropped the magazine onto the coffee table. The day was bright with round high clouds trucking east across the sky. Dad's Land Rover, a dusty safari wagon with the spare tire attached to the hood and a winch on the front bumper, stood out among the Reliance and Colts and even a shiny new Volvo. I yanked open the door and climbed into the smell of ocean, a combination of seaweed, salt, and mildew. A nub of surf wax had melted to the dash, and sand gathered in drifts on the floor mats. Ole got into the back, and Dad started the engine. I didn't know the exact destination, only that we'd be heading west until we came to water. I hoped we'd go to my grandparents' house instead of one of Dad's crash pad apartments, and I felt guilty for this hope. I was a self-conscious kid, often frozen by contradictory thoughts and urges. My grandparents were rich. Dad was poor. I'd learned that wealth made you weak, soft, and blind to reality. But I couldn't help myself. I liked swimming in the big pool, shopping for a new bicycle or video games or the sneakers and jeans and polo shirts that all the other kids were wearing. I liked eating sugary cereal and ice cream on the giant couch while watching the giant television. Ten miles down the freeway, Dad still hadn't explained why he'd pulled us from school. He was in a dark mood, so I didn't press. It had taken almost an hour while the principal, mean Dr. Green, called my mother, checked Dad's ID, and generally made a production out of excusing me from class. Just another little man on a power trip, Dad said to no one and laughed a bit. Well, I said, thanks for busting me loose. I hoped for a quip in response, one of his warnings to never trust what they taught me in school, but Dad only looked at me and smiled in this sad, disappointed way he had. We rose onto the big bowtie junction that led from the 10 to the 91, way above low-flung San Bernardino. A blanket of brown haze lay across the land, hiding even the nearby mountains. Aside from the Ferris wheel of a traveling carnival, all I could see were small boxy buildings, tangles of power lines, and cars moving along an infinite grid of streets. We coasted back to earth and drove on, silent except for the rattle of the rover's engine, the hum of tires, and the wind whistling through old window seals. We passed through Riverside, then Corona, and into an undeveloped stretch that marked a transition from the Inland Empire to Orange County. 
A shallow river valley followed the freeway to the right, full of sparkling green trees. Bare brown hills rose on the left. I nestled into the seat and yawned, lulled by the familiar rhythm of freeway travel. I figured you should hear it from me first, Dad said and cleared his throat, instead of reading about it in the paper or whatever. I opened my eyes and saw him wince at the windshield, as if he'd bitten into a lemon. They say I thought Barclay was sleeping with Julie, but that's not it. I had no idea what he was talking about. Julie was his new wife, a woman I'd only met a few times. I knew Barclay by name, a cousin of my father's who had some money. I remember, he said, staring intently forward and gripping the wheel so hard the veins bulged from his forearms. I remember thinking about how many lives that man had ruined, and then I woke up in jail with a real bad feeling. For a while, he chuckled grimly, shaking his head. For a while, what? Did he say jail? My heart began to pound, and my stomach gurgled. To be honest, it was kind of a relief when the guard finally told me I killed Barclay. We drove in silence long enough for the words to take on their meanings. He turned to me, a pale-eyed man with a round Irish face, roughed up by the sun. You can cry if you want, he said. I blinked hard and looked away, surprised by his words. I placed my hand over my mouth to hide a giddy smile creeping into my face. I don't want to make excuses, he said, but Barclay wasn't a good man. The air in the rover began to shimmer, and everything went strangely vivid. Dad's voice didn't travel through the space between us. It was just there in my head. Meanwhile, the other sounds, engine, tires, wind, came hushed, as if through a thick bubble of glass. The wax on the dashboard appeared distant and huge, like something you traveled to visit, climbing over the contours and cracks on the dash to get to that mound of frozen melt. The long, angled stick shift was the same, an outrageous landmark. I, too, was giant, the hand on my lap carved from a mountain to the scale of Rushmore. I looked out the window, and the world revealed itself as false, a movie set thrown together just for this moment. The cars speeding by were driven by actors pretending not to notice what was going on. The trees and the sky were painted onto screens. I covered my face in my hands to contain the maniac laughter bubbling in my chest. Oh no, I wasn't going to cry. The opposite. I felt wonderful. I know this sounds strange, even cold-blooded, but that's the right word. Full of wonder. I'd become an actor playing myself in the movie about my life, and I knew nothing was ever going to be the same again. I recalled meeting Barclay once before. I pictured a stocky outline, dark hair, and a suit. Oli, Dad, and I had gone to a sushi restaurant somewhere in the concrete interior of Orange County, Santa Ana or Anaheim or Orange, one of those inland cities that all blended together in my mind. It had been daytime, very bright in the strip mall parking lot, and so dark in the restaurant it took a minute for the eyes to adjust. The place had been empty, or nearly so. Dad, another man in Barclay, sat at a booth, drinking and talking grown-up talk, which meant drug dealer talk. Dad put Oli and I two booths away so we wouldn't hear something we might innocently repeat. 
The waitress had instructions to keep the Roy Rogers coming, Coke with grenadine and a cherry, served in smoky highball glasses with red straws. Little desert-dwelling animals that we were in those days, we couldn't help gobbling the cherries and sucking down the sugar water as quickly as they came. Before long, we'd gulped several drinks each. Throbbing with sugar and caffeine, confined to a quiet booth, we began to stare at each other and to giggle. Nothing was funny except that we weren't allowed to laugh. Finally, Dad had to come to our table and give us the disappointed face. You guys all right? he'd finally asked. Think you can cool it a little longer? We said we could, and he returned to the grown-up table. For a while, we managed to keep it together, but the hilarity began to build again, like pressure in a shaken bottle. We clamped shut our mouths to hold it in, but then I squeaked out a fart and we lost it big time. That was my only memory of Barclay, and it didn't live up to the moment. A concrete dam, painted red, white, and blue in honor of the American Bicentennial, bottled up the river, and the ammonia smell from nearby dairy farms crept in through the cracks in the rover. One other thing, Dad said, looking directly at me. Barclay's got a son your age. Used to, at least. Anyway, I'm sorry to lay this on you, but I'm not going to be around to watch your back. This kid may come after you some day to get back at me. You're going to have to look after yourself. You understand what I'm saying? I nodded dumbly as we drifted onto the 55, under a sign that read Beach Cities, quiet now except for Oli's gentle sobs from the back seat. We spent the rest of the week at my grandparents' place in Laguna, a hillside estate with a pool, jacuzzi, a series of koi fish ponds fed by waterfalls, and an ocean view from nearly every window of the sprawling ranch-style house. I loved it here. Who wouldn't? It was my time to be a rich kid, pampered by Grandma Helen in roughhouse by Grandpa Gill for a couple of weeks at a time before being sent back to Mom in varying degrees of poverty. Toward the end of the Anza years, Mom threw her lot in with the Church of the Living Word, a non-denominational church that I'd later find profiled in a book called The Cults of North America. To be nearer the church, we moved from our cabin in Anza to a nowhere town off the 15 freeway into a single wide trailer that still smelled of the piss left by the cat lady former owner. From there, we visited several congregations, called bodies in church lingo, until we finally settled in Redlands, a dusty city of 50,000 an hour east of Los Angeles, where we lived with a roommate in a tiny one-bedroom apartment on a street populated by bikers and other rough sorts. The elders put Mom to work, without pay, as a seamstress in a church-owned clothing factory while helping her apply for welfare and food stamps. The situation lasted a couple of years until Mom, with the church's counsel and permission, married Ralph, a former chopper rider who now made a good living working for the phone company. This is all to say that Ole and I usually loved getting spoiled by Grandma and Grandpa, but today we wandered about the house ignored while men in suits met with Gil, Helen, and Dad. I was too wrapped up in my own thoughts and feelings to wonder who these men were and what they were talking about, though now, thirty years later as I write this, 
I understand that they'd been the defense team planning their strategy, which involved painting my father in the best light and Barkley in the worst. On Sunday, Dad dropped us off outside our house on Orange Street, kissed us each on the cheek, and drove away. Back at school, everyone acted as if nothing had happened. Nothing had happened to them, only to me. I walked about dazed, as if waiting but not knowing what I was waiting for. Mom had told me not to expect a miracle. Seven eyewitnesses willing to testify had seen Dad shoot Barkley at a crowded bar in John Wayne Airport. They'd been drinking for hours, arguing occasionally, when my father drew a pistol and fired into Barkley's head. Then he'd laid his own face on the table and slept so soundly that the police must have thought they'd come upon two corpses. I didn't expect a miracle or anything else. Expecting played no part in what I was doing. Over the week, I sat through speech after speech in Salter's class, hardly listening, too distracted even to dread my own forthcoming performance. But my time would come, whether I was ready for it or not. Failing to turn in a paper was one thing, skipping out on a speech another. One kid had already shown up unprepared, and Salter had forced him to stand before us anyway, simmering in merciless silence, the sort of ridicule I feared more than a broken bone. And so, on the Friday before Monday's speech, I stuck around after class to talk to Salter, hoping to catch a break. I approached the desk after everyone had gone. Yeah? he asked, writing in his grade book. He was a big, meaty guy with thick white hair and a red face. I tried to find some words, but none of them felt right. I wanted him to assure me that everything was okay, that I didn't have to deliver the speech, but I know he'd never say this, no matter the excuse. Speak up. Time is money. What's eating you? Things are weird, I finally got out. Congratulations for figuring that out. You're ahead of the curve. Anything else? He looked up from his grade book, a square-faced man who smelled like menthol shaving cream, the kind I'd been experimenting with. The jacket he always wore had patches on the elbows. I couldn't picture him ever having been young. No, I said, nothing else. See you Monday. Kid, he called as I walked away, surprise yourself. Everybody's got something to say. You just have to find it and let it out. I thought the rest of the day about what it was I had to say and kept thinking on the long bike ride home. I bunny-hopped a curb, entered the alley behind Ralph's place, now our place, and rode through the listing wooden gate into the backyard. All the worry had worn me out, and the answer seemed farther away than ever. I hadn't come up with a single idea. Mom sat wedged into a corner of the new sectional couch she and Ralph had gotten as a wedding present, reading one of her Conan novels. She'd recently cut her long, straight hair into the feathery style of Dorothy Hamill, a famous figure skater of the time. I wasn't used to the new hair, the new house, or the new stepfather, and Mom seemed for a moment like someone else's mother, or rather, everyone else's mother, one of the women who picked her kids up at school. The problem was that I wasn't one of those kids. Come here, she said, patting a cushion, the book on her lap. I sat beside her, staring at my reflection on the blank TV screen. Your father's gone, she said. Gone? 
I was still watching myself, not her. He jumped bail. Where'd he go? I asked. She reached over and touched my head. Nobody knows. If they knew, they'd catch him. Okay, I said and stood. I wasn't sure how to feel, so I chose to take the news as routine information, as if church had been switched from Wednesday to Thursday. Don't worry about him. He's surfing out there somewhere. He'll be fine. He always is. I could hear the anger in her voice, but paid it no mind. She always sounded like that when talking about my dad. How about you? she asked. Are you all right? Yes, I said. I have to give a speech on Monday. Well, keep up with your homework. You don't want to fall behind. Listen, I know it's hard, but try not to think about your father too much, if you can. He can't come back. I went into my room and closed the door. An old rabbit pelt, stiff and smelly, lay on my desk, a mat on which to display my pinewood derby car and the first-place trophy it had earned, the only thing I'd ever won. I'd shot the rabbit myself in Anza that summer I'd stayed with Dad after Mom and I had moved away and Dad had moved back in. At first, I couldn't understand why he'd taken our place like that, especially since he'd originally left because there wasn't any surf in Anza. I'd begun to suspect that it must have been us who had driven him away, but then I stumbled upon his pot crop in the Manzanita Grove and understood. He was here to grow weed. We went hunting on a lark to practice shooting the rifles he'd bought so he could better protect the crop. With an old crappy twenty-two, I'd hit a jackrabbit from a hundred yards away, an amazing lucky shot way over onto the Coahuila Reservation that bordered our property. We'd meant to cook whatever we killed for dinner, especially after Dad's lecture about how disrespectful it was to waste an animal, one shot on Indian land, no less. But his girlfriend at the time called it a rodent and refused to let us bring it into the kitchen, trying to salvage the situation to convince myself that the act meant something. I insisted we cure the hide, imagining making a hat of it or something nice for my mom. Dad wasn't so sure, but he helped me skin the animal, and then he nailed the pelt to a piece of plywood. As an afterthought, he sprinkled on some of his dog's flea powder. Over the next days, the skin dried into a crusty tray, and though I realized we hadn't done it right, that Dad didn't actually know how to make the fur soft like it should be, I brought it home anyway, and had kept it through several moves. Only now was I beginning to accept it for what it was, worthless and dirty. My notebook lay open to a blank page, and I could find no words to put on it. I crossed the hall to Mom and Ralph's room, which was dark with the blinds drawn. I faced the full-length mirror and didn't like what I saw. Bi-level hair cut in straight lines, one at the forehead and the other at the collar just curly enough for wavelets to shoot up here and there no matter how often I wet them and combed them down. Tan velour pullover, stained right down the center as if from drool. Baggy corduroy pants, hush puppy shoes, big front teeth gapped in the middle. Not cool. The girls didn't like me. The boys didn't either. At best, I was ignored, but they can't ignore you when you stand at the front of the class and give a speech. It had always been my habit to avoid bad thoughts, but I couldn't dodge them now, so I gave in. I pictured. I dwelled. My zipper's down. 
pretty Kathleen Connor sneers. Everybody laughs, passes notes. I stutter. Giant sweat stains appear under my arms. I forget how to read. I freeze. The minutes tick by. Salter gives me an F. Okay, I thought, squinting at the kid in the mirror. I licked my dry lips and stepped closer, heart pounding. A cool wave moved from my scalp down to my toes, waking me up as if from a groggy dream. I didn't care what they thought, not anymore, and maybe never again. I knew something they didn't know. I was somebody they didn't know, and they weren't going to know me, not unless I wanted them to, not unless I let them. Who were they, anyway? Nobodies. Regular boys and girls with regular fathers and mothers who lived in regular houses where nothing ever happened. And who was I? Well, I had secrets, and secrets within secrets. My father was a fugitive, an outlaw at large, sure. A look in the newspaper could tell you that. But there was more to it. A boy, my age, a hidden enemy, was growing up alongside me, plotting revenge. I'd never met him, but he was out there, living as I lived, walking through grass, sitting at desks, thinking about the escaped man who killed his father, and then thinking about me, that man's son. A gray houndstooth cap hung on the door behind me, the English type that snaps down low over the brim. A famous television detective wore a hat like that. I fitted on my head, and though it was too large, I kept it on as I slipped out of the house without Mom noticing, walked away from home and into the neighborhood west of Orange Street to the part of town I was supposed to avoid. In a quiet park of cracked basketball courts and grass covered in dandelions, I studied the graffiti etched across the handball court as if trying to crack a code. The dozen cholos standing around a low rider in the parking lot ignored me. For all they knew, I was exactly where I was supposed to be. I ventured down a narrow street, padding silently in my hush puppies, noticing parked cars and people on porches and bits of trash caught in sewer drains, strolling casually as if I hadn't noticed anything at all. In a flash, I ducked into an alley and halfway to the end, cut up between two houses and back onto another street, shaking my invisible stalker. Trouble would find me one day, and when it did, I was going to have to be ready. And that's not all I'd be ready for. Mom told me to forget him, but I wasn't going to. I held one final secret, even from those who knew the rest. One of these days, the message would arrive. It might not come for five years, ten years, twenty years, but some day it would find its way into my hands. A puzzle, a riddle, sketches in lines and arrows and X's and O's, a map. I'd study it, break the code. Then I'd cross borders, cross the ocean. I'd find the uncharted island, hacked through jungle to the hidden cove where out in the water a lone man surfed glassy waves like the ones printed on t-shirts, the ones I'd seen him surf in the mist of dawn. I'd lift the spare board from the sand and paddle out. We'd sit like cowboys on our mounts, not talking, just watching the horizon for waves as the sun rose over the water. Sunday after church, watching the Rams on television with Ralph, I began to compose the speech about football, of all things. I'd taken an interest in strategy of late, in offense, defense, X's and O's. 
I jotted some notes, came up with an introduction, a conclusion, a few plays to fit in the middle. The next day, I carried the papers up to the podium, tilted the detective cap low to hide my eyes, and began to read. After I'd gotten through the introduction, I pushed the cap high on the forehead and regarded them, my fellow students. They looked pretty and handsome and knew how to dress, how to act, what to say, and when to say it. They understood parties, dancing, and what music to listen to, but I wasn't afraid of them. I drew X's on one side of the board, I drew O's on the other. I drew lines and arrows. Offense, defense, cat and mouse. They run this way, you run that. It's simple, I explained. Sulter gave me an A, but I didn't care about the grade. I had other worries.